Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Into the Impossible. I uh, just finished recording the episode you're about to listen to. I want to uh, say that this was a very interesting conversation for me. I had not yet had on uh, um, someone with the experience of commanding a $2 billion vehicle, and then uh, such as the USS Santa Fe, which was Captain Marquet's previous assignment. And, uh, and yet he has this humility, servant leadership uh, trait that's allowed him to really um, speak to the hearts of the people that he works with. He's working now as a consultant advisor. I want to uh, really just, just you know, uh, say how much I appreciated his time. And uh, his team has graciously allowed us to have a giveaway for uh, residents of the United States or air post office boxes if you're in the military. So we have a lot of military guests on the show. Uh, you uh, will hopefully have a link that you can download and give a, uh, for a giveaway of uh, Captain Marquet's book, uh, his new book, Leadership is Language. I have it on audio and on uh, and in the physical world right here. I'm going to give an introduction to him. I didn't want to spend uh, his valuable time reading his introduction because it's so extensive. I'm going to do it now. Uh, so L. David Marquet is an author, a student of leadership and organizational design. He's a former nuclear submarine commander and was named one of the top 100 leadership speakers by Inc. magazine. David is the author of the Amazon number one bestseller, Turn the Ship Around, and Turn the Ship Around Workbook. Uh, I have not read that, uh, the workbook, but I'm actually going to pick it up right now. David's recently released book, Leadership is Language, is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. David Marquet imagines a workplace where everyone engages and contributes to their full intellectual capacity a place where people are healthier and happier because they have more control over their work, a place where everyone is a leader. And just breaking away from the uh, publicity materials that he sent me, his team sent me, uh, there's uh, really a special message encoded in this, in this podcast and maybe even in the book, which is his life's mission. You'll tune into the end of the podcast. He'll talk about why this book is so important outside of leadership. And it really uh, touched me to hear his response. So stay tuned for that. Uh, David's a 1981 U.S. Naval Academy graduate, and he served in the U.S. submarine forces for 28 years. After being assigned to command the nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Santa Fe, which was then ranked last in retention and operational standing, he realized the traditional leadership approach of take control, give orders, would not work. He turned the ship around by treating his crew as leaders, not followers, and giving control, not taking control. This approach took the Santa Fe from worst to first, achieving the highest retention and operational standings in the Navy. After Captain Marquet's departure, the Santa Fe continued to win awards, promoted a disproportionate number of officers, and enlisted men for leadership positions, including 10 subsequent submarine captains. And I could tell it was one of his highest um, honors for him that he not only had many followers, but he created many more leaders. And uh, in the previous book, in this book, uh, there's a foreword, by Stephen Covey, who I believe has since passed away, unfortunately. Um, and uh, this book says, I don't know of a finer model of this kind of empowering leadership than Captain Marquet. And in the pages that follow, you'll find a, a model for your pathway. It's also by um, Joe DeBono. Uh, he called it, The Hunt for Red October Meets Harvard Business School. Uh, Simon Sinek said David Marquet is the kind of leader who comes around once in a generation. So this book is really uh, a precursor. I would read this first. If you're going to read it, maybe get the workbook. I'm going to go buy that now. 
I'll put links in the show notes uh, so you can get it too. And then remember to enter into the contest. I'll promote that on social media and he will as well. Uh, and then just lastly, the team sent me uh, what is the message of this new playbook for leaders uh, called Leadership is Language. <clears throat> and uh, really, he says it's time to ditch the industrial age playbook of leadership. This book provides a structure as well as specific language for dramatically improving decision making and execution for teams. In addition to being a Wall Street Journal and Washington Post bestseller, Leadership is Language has been named the business book of the month by the Financial Times. So I think what was so uh, exciting for me to talk about him and obviously talk about scientific leadership, academic leadership, is this notion uh, that we're all leaders and we can lead in any level and the ways and tools that he describes and how to do that um, are actionable. And you can do that uh, at any level, in your family, in your friends, uh, in the military, even if you're not, you know, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, you can do it. And he really gives you in this new book, Leadership is Language, the number one tool, which is this unique ability that human beings have to communicate. And, uh, and so I, I hope you'll enjoy this episode with uh, Captain L. David Marquet, U.S. Navy, retired. And uh, I hope you'll uh, enjoy, like, subscribe, comment, all those good things to keep this podcast going. Let me know what you like about it. And uh, let me know what other guests you'd like me to have on the show. Thanks very much. Now, pleased to present Captain L. David Marquet, Leadership is Language on the Into the Impossible podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Into the Impossible podcast. I am your lately very fearful host, as I say, uh, Brian Keating, co-director of UCSD's Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imaginations into the Impossible podcast, where we talk to great leaders and thinkers, scientists, artists, poets. Yesterday, uh, Captain, you'll be uh, pleased to know I talked to a NASA astronaut. My second one, the first one I talked to, Dr. Jessica Meir, she I talked to from the International Space Station. But you're also calling in from where Nicole Stott, astronaut Stott that I spoke to yesterday, called in from, which is Florida. So first, uh, Captain, how are you doing in Florida? Good. I'm fine. I'm I'm like being home, I'm an I'm an introvert and a geek. So hey, this is great. It's like you know, Montezuma's Revenge or something. <laughs> it's uh, hey, told you guys it was scary getting together with people. Yeah, I know. I was thinking, well, you know, for a lot of our friends, I always joke, you know, how do you know if a scientist is an extrovert? Uh, because he looks at your shoes instead of his own shoes, and uh, uh, I like to be with my fellow uh, fellow geeks and and nerds, especially one such as yourself, who's uh, taught me so much. Uh, you didn't know this, but I, I read uh, the previous book, Turn the Ship Around, and just devoured uh, this book called Leadership is Language. Uh, reportedly, I think I heard that you were going to call this the five love languages of leadership, but maybe maybe that's not true. We had a lot of titles. Yeah, yeah, so I always ask my guests, actually, let's segue right into that. Uh, the advice is never judge a book by its cover, but I always judge all books by their cover because yeah. I'm just human, right? So how'd you come up with the title, uh, actually, for this uh, for this book, your most recent book? But let's actually start with Turn the Ship Around and the cover yeah, design. Turn the Ship Around was easy. It was, um, I was, uh, this was like five years before I wrote it. I was still in the Navy. I was doing... Anyway, I was I was talking to various people. Uh, I had had a job at one point where I was a liaison up in Manhattan to business groups, and that was really interesting because I got to meet all these 
business people and financial people, hedge fund people, whatever. Anyway, so I'm, I'm telling them kind of my story, my thoughts, what's going on. And uh, one guy just blurts out to me, he said, oh, yeah, you, I'll give you the title of your book, Turn the Ship Around. And as soon as he said that, I said, yeah, yeah that's it. And then, of course, so you have the scene in Star Wars where Leia's coming back or and they say turn the ship around and they kind of come back to pick up Luke he's dangling from that thing and so if you type in turn the ship around you'll either get my book or you'll get a scene from Star Wars oh we love it here and our uh, Arthur C. Clarke would uh, be proud to hear that and right. then uh, leadership is language uh, subtitle the hidden power of what you say and what you don't and yeah. uh, I think I understand the symbolism of the colors but can you talk us through the title and uh, what it means to you so at one point, I want to call it the new playbook for leadership or have the subtitle be a playbook because here's the way I think about it. I, uh, as I went through my leadership stuff, I kept, it's all about inter how you interact with people. Leadership's always about other people. So, and how do you do that? We do it through language. So if you're a paint, if you're a painter, you use paint. If you're a bricklayer, you use bricks and mortar. If you're a leader, you use words. And it always seemed to me like we, 99% of leadership programs got shy of saying the actual words. We would say things like, well, you need to communicate more. You need to care of your people. You need to blah, blah, blah. Like, well, what do you actually, like, what, is, what do you say? How do you make that happen? You need to empower your people. And so for me, I, I started making this big list of don't say this, say that. Mm. So for example, when you ask a question, someone comes up to you and says, I, I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> you, and, you, and your reaction is, no, let me explain. Let me, let, me, let me tell you. Or you might say, if you're enlightened, feeling enlightened that day, well, why do you think that? Anyway, none of these I don't think are very good responses. Uh, what you want to be is curious, not compelling. So, mm -hmm. and, you, and, and even if you said, are you sure? That's still not that helpful because the response still doesn't tell you a whole lot, I would argue. Yes, I'm sure. Well, what does that even mean? If it's about the future, you can't be sure. You and I are physicists, so we know everything is probabilistic. Every, yeah, in the future, anyway. Mm -hmm. Maybe even in the past, but we'll let that be. Anyway, so, so I would say, well, don't say, are you sure? Ask, how sure are you? Don't ask, is it safe? Ask, how safe is it? And so I kept starting this big list. Uh, and it turns out there's a there's a underlying pattern to all these different things that we say. And the pattern is they're structured from an industrial age era with the objective, two objectives. One is to reduce variability, collapse variability and uncertainty as soon as possible, which often means prematurely. And two, there's a coercive nature because the industrial age organization was designed so that one group of people made decisions and a different group of people just, uh, had to implement the decisions that were determined by the first group of people. And it looks like this. This is your industrial age factory. You have all these people. These are people doing what they're told. And this one person over here, the foreman, is the person who's telling people what to do. So... The point is, in that model, it's all co it's coercive. We don't say it. We use, oh, it's motivational, it's inspirational, it's whatever. But it's fundamentally about getting someone else to do something you decided they needed to do. 
And it hit me like a light, like just a ton of bricks. Like that's the model. It doesn't have to be that way. We can let the people who are doing the work make decisions about the work. How do we do that? We know it's better. And it came out through language. And so I, what I think is, my hypothesis is that our language is an industrial age language. And you can do everything you want to claim to be in an enlightened workplace and an enlightened leader. But unless you actually change the words you say, now this is the easiest and the hardest thing to do. You don't need software. You don't need to change laws of physics. But you have to change your habits. And there's so many people, myself included, that you just stuck and you're stuck in the patterns. There's some people, for example, who like to say the word right. So right and then right and then right. No, wrong. Why do we have to? First of all, why are we saying right? It's a coercion. It's a micro coercion to piggyback on another genre. It's a micro coercion because it's just saying, if you don't think this is right, you're the odd person out. You, and, and, and I just make it a little harder for people to disagree. Yeah. The structure of meetings where we talk about something and then we vote is inherently coercive because mm. the conversation makes it harder for, uh, for the outliers to speak up. We want it to be, because I'm not really, truly, honestly interested in a real conversation. So I say, hey, we should launch 737 Max software, right? I mean, we've done a lot of testing, testing all kinds. I mean, you told me, yeah, that's look good. Blah, 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 blah. It's very important. Airbus is getting ahead of us. We're ready so, to go, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what do you guys think? Uh, uh huh. <laughs> no. So it's all upside down. It's the culture, yeah. And, uh, I usually don't no, push, but it's the words. It's the words, not right. The so, words, but I'm there, saying, we, we yeah, we're stuck in this culture. From culture. Yeah, it all starts with the words that you say. Yeah. So I'm an educator. You know, my day job is an educator. My night job is doing podcasts. Uh, but, uh, but you know, and I usually don't push back against my uh, my guests that I'm uh, very honored to have so early in the conversation. But I'm going to push back a little bit. So um, I'm an educator, and the educational system in America. Uh, and throughout the Western world, I don't know so much about other parts of the world, is still this industrial, even pre-industrial model where you're training people to be in that factory setup, just like you displayed on your virtual background a couple of minutes ago. And yeah. uh, and I'm, and that language is also extremely important. You can't teach somebody if you don't have sort of a notion of, not, I don't want to say love, but, uh, but I, I feel like you have to have a certain amount of affection, the Maslow's hierarchy, you talk about this before, but uh, but you have to have physical safety. You have to have some kind of emotional connection. You can't say like, you're gonna. I mean, your drill sergeants or whatever you have equivalent in the Navy is same thing. Uh, you know, I don't think that's the most important language to communicate teaching in a way that's going to penetrate into the soul of the receiver. And I guess my my pushback to you is, if the educational system, which every leader had to go through the educational system, and if that hasn't changed in 250 plus years. Why are you optimistic that we can change a higher order meta skill like leadership based on language if we can't even get the preceding uh, amount of education changed in the way that we use language as educators? Well, I don't think you're pushing back. I didn't say I was optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, fine. Yeah. I, 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 it's going to change. Mm -hmm. um, and, and first of all, I totally agree with you. 
it, 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 it's, a lot of these things are not obvious. If you're picturing the drill sergeant, that's the wrong picture. Like that's obvious <laughs> coercion <laughs> and it's played for a certain reason. Well, these are things that we say not meaning to be this way, but are patterns of speech. So if I ask you, well, I, I, so I consult a bunch of big companies and they run a meeting and they make a decision. I said, well, how, why did you run the meeting that way? Why did you discuss it and then vote? And why was the vote like a binary Roman vote? Why didn't you ask a probabilistic vote? And why didn't you ask the vote at the beginning? No one, I don't know. It's just the way we do it. People, no one's thinking. They're just unthinkingly repeating the same thing. And so if you go back that, so we're unthinkingly repeating stuff from a hundred years ago because all, all the way in between, no one ever stood up and said, this is not helping my cause. So first of all, yeah, the education system is, is part of it. Things are changing. I mean, there are there are education, there are spotlights, and, and we know companies, and they're changing. But it's it, it always starts with the with 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 you, and we always have awkward conversations with leadership. They're like, oh, we want you to come in and, and fix our people, t teach them to speak up. Teach them to think creatively. I, like I'm pretty sure they're already thinking creatively. They're just keeping <laughs> their heads, kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, okay, well, let's start with you guys. No, 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 we're fine. I ordered them to speak up. It's not me. Like, okay, got it. Like, anyway. So yeah. So it's going to be hard, but what's going to happen is the companies don't that don't operate this way are eventually going to go out of business. You can you can make a lot of money for a long time, but eventually it's all going to collapse because uh, the the leader is going to leave. So so the leader could create a system where I'm the key decision maker, like Jack Welch, and you can tell these people because it's a very personality based thing. Jack Welch is a name one of the vice presidents. Right, can't do it. Yeah, because you never heard about them. Because Jack, Jack Welch never talked about them. He only talked about himself. Yeah, and so then. We push or put our covers on the pictures, our picture on the cover of our books, and then the thing falls apart. A after he leaves, or B because the things are in play. So it's not replicated. Mm -hmm. Now Apple with Steve Jobs is kind of an interesting and different story. I think, yeah, you know, I never met him, but I read the different biographies on them. They they kind of paint a pretty brutal picture, but. There was there's something going on there because they're still doing very very obviously very well, which mm -hmm. wouldn't be the case if they're all if if it was if it was Steve Jobs if he was he was the guy. Yeah, I mean that might owe itself also the different culture in Silicon Valley, as you talk about in the book towards the end of the book. You know, uh, when leaders are fearful of granting authority and even the communications delegation to younger people in particular, you make this point. They do themselves a disservice because it might be that a younger person, yeah, they're not he or she might not be as senior as the leaders, quote unquote. And this holds for experiments. This holds for department chairs and academia, which I want to get to. Uh, but actually, they're doing themselves a disservice by creating this sort of cult of personality. As you say, it dies with them. And you give the point of you know Gordon Moore and um, and and also uh, Andy Grove and, and talking about they would do these kinds of exercises where they'd ask themselves and what we call as physicists a Gedanken experiment a thought experiment how would the company look if we suddenly disappeared not gruesomely just they're gone you know maybe they got a bigger better offer yeah, and yeah, I wonder 
Say that again. Got them to save. They saved Intel because Intel was a memory chip maker, and they decided to go into processors. And there was a critical moment when uh, Gordon Moore turns to Andy Grove and he says, "Well, what if we imagine we both be fired, and they brought in two new people to run the company? What would they do?" And he's like, "Well, that's easy. We get we we shift from memory to microprocessors." Well, what like that's a brilliant. Why is it so easy to do that? Because I've psychologically detached myself from my previous decision. And this is one of the key things that happens in organizations. Once the per, once you make a decision, your your emotion, your ego now attaches to that. Mm-hmm. And so now you are you are contaminated. You no longer can dispassionately evaluate that decision. And we have lots of examples in history. We, the, the, it's called escalation of commitment, as you probably know. So we keep pouring effort into proving that, yeah, it was right, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, doing print film. Of course, we got rich making print film. We're going to keep doing print film. Print film is the future, even though it's not. Everyone else knows it. We might even know it, but we can't. We can't just because we were we were the people who did print film. Yeah. What's interesting to me are the counterexamples. I mean, there's just a few, but you look at Microsoft and they basically put no energy in, in, into the web. They kind of thought it was a passing fancy. And they're one of the few, you know, to Kodak, you know, versus Instagram or something like that, that were nimble because I think they had a vision of themselves with a leadership mindset. And, and again, I mean, Bill Gates is, was, at least for a long time, the real focal point of that organization. And, and so it is sort of surprising. A, they've done better maybe since he's left in, in some ways, and B, that they were surviving these huge ta- uh, strategic mistakes, not just the tactical mistakes. And we'll get into the El Faro. But since we already started down this road, um, when I, I, I mentioned just before we started recording, I'm a pilot and uh, just a hobby pilot. Uh, hopefully, I, I, I am in training to get my CFI, my Certified Flight Instructor Certificates. I'm a commercial pilot. I'm going to try to become a flight instructor, mainly so I could teach my kids someday how to fly little Cessnas around. Uh, but uh, but we're taught very early on, uh, and, and it's actually funny to me, Captain, you'll be amused. In the whole Federal Register of Documents, I believe that there's only one place where they talk about you know someone's emotions and their feelings and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it's an FAA federal document on how to be a flight instructor, and it talks about like the need for love and the need for safety. I just think it's funny, like you wouldn't find this in the IRS you know handbook for auditors. You know, here's how you're you have to make your auditee feel feel uh, loved and welcome. But anyway, uh, well, in this yeah, we're taught that the most dangerous words we can say is, Captain, I'm going to see you uh, at the airport at 5:03 p.m. Uh, exactly on Sunday afternoon. Uh, don't be late. I'm not going to be late. It's called get there itis. And I feel like uh, that's another name maybe for this escalation of commitment. It's sort of a sunk cost fallacy. With pilots, it's extremely dangerous because we'll just get tunnel vision. We'll just ignore the weather. Oh, there's a huge buildup, cumulative buildup over there. Oh, there's the airport's got a NOTAM. There's a TFR, the president's. And we just ignore it. We have to be there because I made this commitment you know, I'm going to meet the captain there. And I don't want to be late. And I, I get my ego invested in it. And I think these biases that you talk about in the book, they're so pernicious. And yet I, I just feel like they're hardwired. Maybe this is another thing that we're both not optimistic about. I don't know. But these things are so hardwired in that we have names for them, these fallacies and biases. Are you sanguine at all that the human mind, especially in a leadership, high stakes, corporate world, or even academia, that we can overcome these lizard-like reactions that our brains all are subjective to, subject to? Yeah, so so the play we call, the, the play you're describing, we call obey the clock. Hmm. We have work, we have clockwork. We, 
we clock, many, many people still clock in and clock out. Why? Because it's an industrial age construct. It was about obeying the clock. Now, the problem is when you're obeying the clock, as you know, from flight instructor, your brain, exactly how you described it, you get tunnel focus on the, and you don't eat, it's not like you see the clouds and you say, no, I'm not going to pay attention to the storm, to the weatherhead over there. It's like you don't even see it. And so what you want to do as a leader is control the clock, control it for your team. You're, the leader's the one that's got to say, all right, everyone stop, put your pencils down. And we now need to raise our heads and turn left and right and scan the horizon and decide what to do. Then we'll go back. It, it's good to be focused and committed on the work for bulk periods of time, that, but be super focused. What happens is organizations don't define, this is a focus time, this is broad perspective time. So what happens is while I'm focused, I need to reserve a little bit of my cognitive ability to be scanning. So I'm only 90% into it. And because it's only partly out of it, then I'm, I'm, I'm liable to miss stuff. And then there's no rhythm. So the whole thing about the new book is in these plays, you gotta be laser focused, but then super broad, be looking at the, uh, looking at the horizon. But there was something else you said that, what was the last thing you ended up with? Uh, just uh, psychological biases that we're all subject to. And oh, yeah, not- yeah, yeah. So, look. So, we have instinctive responses to things. And as the world gets more and more complicated, your million years of DNA has no, no chance. contact to this thing. Mm-hmm. So what's happening is our biological wiring is many times needs to be overridden by a more level-headed cognitive thinking. Kahneman talks about system one and system two. It's, a, it's not just Kahneman, but it's a common, like we have our instinct, immediate reaction. I'll give you an example though. Racism. Hmm. We're wired to be suspicious of people from the other tribe. Someone who looks differently than me, that's a mark marker that person's from another tribe. Now, we have been, we as a race, have been working diligently, in my opinion, not uh, some more than others, to create systems to make it fair for everybody because we recognize, the conscious brain recognizes that's evil. That's not good. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for me to be suspicious of this person. And so I have, the, I have some of this instinct, but then I have to override it as mm-hmm. a human. And in our policies, we say, well, you know, I can write policies when I'm in calm, clear, cool, collected uh, thinking mode. I'm not in a dark alley. I don't have, I don't have my prime primordial fears triggering behaviors and so then i can write policies that will help me not fall into these traps i so anyway it's it's like maybe it's taken longer than it should have but 
just like I think we can be better. But there is some, there is some deep, deep down wiring that mm. is no longer helpful for us. And uh, 10,000 generations from now, it'll be gone. Right. We got a lot. We got to get from here to there. <laughs> what do you make of, uh, you know, this, uh, say, say we're, we're um, speaking to a young middle manager or associate professor, somebody who wants to, you know, move up in the, in the corporate or academic ladder. Uh, there are all these gatekeepers, you know, ahead of her and, um, and, and she's not really in charge of her own destiny. So she may read these books and just benefit as I did. You know, I'm blessed to be, you know, co-leading with uh, some of the most brilliant scientists around, uh, this huge, you know, hundred million dollar project called the Simons Observatory in the high Atacama desert of Chile. And, uh, and, and those people are, are so brilliant. My co-leaders of the experiment and all the people that work for us let's say somebody has a suggestion, uh, they may be a graduate student, they may be a assistant professor, you know, lower in the pecking order, you know, equivalent to a, you know, lieutenant or captain, or not a captain and not in the Navy, obviously, but lieutenant commander or something like that, but not at the level where they can actually turn the ship around, uh, so, to, so to speak. Uh, what do you make, like, it's, it's frustrating when I, I remember what it's like. I know more than this person. Uh, and yet they knew me when I was, a you know, what, are, what do you call the, you know, the ensigns, the pukes or whatever you call the scab, scallywag. I don't even know. But, uh, but they knew me when I knew nothing. And so how are they ever going to revise that image, that mental model that they constructed, which is another bias. Uh, but how, how can you actually empower somebody in minimal, or, or I guess what I'm asking, are these books only for like the Jack Welch's, uh, you know, they should have read this book, uh, or, or how can someone who's not in the apex of the pyramid yet, you know, how can she make a change and effectuate the, the great wisdom of the books? Well, you influence, you, you influence in your family, you influence in your division or if you don't in your department if you're not a department head in your division if you're not in your squad if you're just a team member you can influence the in a positive way the people to the left and the right of you and you can maybe even influence uh, upward you can find there are things in this book that i think will help you be heard the big the problem is people just try and have influence and they skip the earn the so it's always a two step earn the right to be heard, then have influence. And people say, well, that's that's going to take time. It's going to be annoying. They should just trust that I'm a brilliant genius and smarter than them, and they need to listen to me. Mm. Nah, it doesn't work like that. So <laughs> step one, earn the right to be heard. Step two, have influence. So I, yeah. Therefore, uh, if you deal with human beings in your life, then I'm then there's something in in here for you. Yeah. We have a lot of people talk about in how this works in their families. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I can definitely see that. I mean, I was just after reading the book yesterday, I was talking to my oldest son and he's, you know, he's really interested in these podcasts and so forth. And he's like, you know, what makes a good interview data? And I said, well, look at, uh, you know, look at what God or nature, if you, if you prefer, gave you, you know, you have two ears and you have one mouth. And basically, it's a it's a hint that you should listen, you know, basically twice as much as you talk. So I hope I'm doing that. But uh, but I, I agree when you say earn the right to be heard. That's really just like first you have to listen and then you can speak. So it's kind of like the two to one ratio almost embodied exactly what you're saying. Um, I want to talk. And then, of course, there's this notion you mentioned it in your book. 
that leaders speak last. And, and it goes through with these tools. And I love the fact that you give not only the strategy, you know, the kind of uh, 30,000 furlongs, or I don't know what you guys talk about, but, but the really big picture view, you know, we'd say 30,000 feet as a pilot, but um, you give the, the strategic overview. But it, more important, I think, are the tactics that you give. So I thought we maybe we could go through just one quick one. You talk about the cards, and I'll, I'll have a link to some exercises that my listeners can apply so that they can viscerally feel that. But talk about the fist to five, because I want to use that to riff on something that I came up with that has to do with, of all things, the uh, second law of thermodynamics after this. But talk about fist to five, how you came up with it, or or how you apply it, and uh, how it benefits leadership as well. One of our clients is a global construction company. And for anyone in construction, anyone can imagine a construction site, there's a lot of top-down, do-what-you're-told kind of stuff. And they, every morning the team gets together. So I was, uh, I would observe these meetings. And so one morning I was in Boston observing a meeting and it was a bunch of carpenters and the foreman walks in and he's a little bit of a younger guy, but he takes a very gruff tone. He uses the F-bomb about 15 times in a five minute. So we're going to do this, 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 uh, you good? Go. Now, you good? That's not really a question. <laughs> you, I wouldn't put a question mark after it if I were writing it. It means you better be good, and you're on your way. And I'm not. In, and no one had any questions. Right. The safety head, safety guy, got up and he said he asked six questions immediately in a row. Immediately went on to the next one. So you got the tools you need, right? You don't want anyone's hard hat to blow up, do you? And blah blah. blah. Like, again, no one said anything. 40 people. No one said anything. And afterwards, I was like, Did, were you really looking for responses to those questions? Well, yeah, they're just uh, the problem is these, these are these binary questions. Is it safe? Uh, is it safe? Yeah. Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. So you got to say how safe is it? So we changed it. So on the on the construction site, because no one's going to no one. Literally, no one's going to say it's not safe to work today. We have a storm blowing in. We have five new people. We're going up on the third deck. There's no railings. It's not safe. But if you ask every day, you say, how safe is it? Zero to five. And people are going five, five, five. And then one day they say four. It's easy to do that. Mm -hmm. Now you're like, oh, something's changed. Mm. We were talking to a doctor's organization in Seattle. So this is when COVID hit. And uh, one enlightened doctor started asking her team. The rest of them were like, you guys are good, right? You're good, right? And they would all say, yeah. They would all pretend to be good. They weren't good. They were nervous. Some of them had when, and when they had elderly parents. They would go home. So they'd be exposed as healthcare workers. They would go home, interact with elderly parents. They were super scared. So this one doctor says, how safe do you feel? Not, are you safe? Mm-hmm. And they're putting up, one person puts up a zero. That takes guts. I mean, you just work with three, but it's zero. You know, first of all, thank you. You're the first person ever asked me that. And number two, and she told a story. It was with this. Uh, I, my my mom lives with me. If I get sick, I'm, she's gonna die. And I will know that I killed her. Can I work in a different? Can I do something anyway? So the idea, so that's fist to five. Mm. You got to ask your questions in a probabilistic way. We say start the question with the word how. Mm-hmm. How mm. sure 
your house safe is it didn't don't tell people just so that that'll make your questions better Right. Yeah, I was thinking about that. You know, when you go to a restaurant and you ask uh, the server, you know, what's your favorite dish? Well, you're just getting, you know, a sample of one. But if you say, what's the most popular dish, then you're getting a sample of every person that that server has interacted with. Now, it's not not as high a stakes as dealing with COVID or dealing with the ship. The the other thing that that really inspired me to think about is I've, I've heard it asked, you know, on a scale of one to 10, you know, almost everybody will say seven, you know, no matter what it is, because seven's safe, seven's cozy, you know, it's not too far away from 10. So you're not insulting somebody. And it's not so far away from five that, you know, five is almost awful out of a 10 points. So you, you basically say, you know, on a scale of, you know, one to 10, but you can't pick seven, uh, what would you assign the probability exactly as you're saying? And I think those kinds of exercises are extremely valuable because a lot of times, yeah, you don't want to stick your neck up. Those, those are the people that get shot. Um, speaking of uh, fingers and and uh, and your hand, I wanted to just you know uh, remind you because you you're, you had, had you know tr- uh, training in physics that the uh, second law of thermodynamics states that you know entropy is always increasing, and the reason for that you know your coffee will very uh, often stay mixed up with the cream, but it'll almost never separate into a state of pure cream and pure coffee because there's only one such state, whereas there's an infinite number of combinations of multiple states. And I like to take people through an exercise, you know, how many pairs of interactions, you know, can you have in an organization with N elements in it? So if there's a, you know, a sub has what, 80 people on it, Captain, something like that? 140. 140. So how many pairs of interactions are there? Well, it's easier to start with your fist, start with your hand. So if you have five people on the submarine, how many combinations are there? Well, this guy can pair up with this one, this one, this one, and this one. And so you go through it and it's four plus three plus two plus one different combinations. So there's 10 combinations. And actually the pairs of, of, of contacts scale as the square of the number. So it made me think when I was reading, and that's kind of like the entropy of leadership. Like the num- it, is it more, and at least in my opinion, the organization is actually built up of pairs of networks, and then the network as a whole, you know, can be influenced by any one pair, but uh, but it doesn't have the influence of the n squared. And so you kind of cost benefit win as the number. It's n squared divided by n. But I wonder, you know, in uh, in in this regime, is it more important as a leader to work on those like interpersonal? I've heard it said, you know, Lincoln was such a great, uh, you know, Jim Simons, who's the patron of our experiment, the Simons Observatory. He says Lincoln's his favorite leader of all time, even human being of all time, because he would go out and he would mix with the troops. He would create those bonding pairs that I just talked about. What like single trait besides, in addition to language, perhaps, uh, or maybe in the context of language, when you're talking, uh, is the most important you know, trait or tactic or skill to use in order to be a successful leader? Well, I'm guessing Lincoln's relationship with Grant was more important than his relationship with a common soldier, but those interactions are important because when they aggregate, uh, that soldier will talk to other soldiers, and he may Lincoln may learn something that he wouldn't have learned if he's talking to Grant and Halleck and Mm -hmm. the rest of the Union leaders. So I think you, you, the thing I just keep going back to is why did you ask, why did you say it that way? Mm. Why did you use those words? Mm. 99% of the time people shrug their shoulders. So really in-depth listening, deep listening, and uh, and deliberate speaking. 
-hmm. If you're going to speak, decide how you're going to say, what is the question you're going to ask and how are you going to ask it? Mm. So, um, Captain, I know we just have a few more minutes. If you'll indulge me, I have some questions from my audience. Uh, so one member of my audience is, uh, is, is a practicing Jew. And one of the worst uh, offenses that a person can commit in Judaism is what's called Lashon Hora, which means literally an evil tongue. Uh, and there's a parable said that when uh, a, a rabbi was disparaged in, in the ancient, uh, not ancient, but in you know the shtetls of Eastern Europe in the 1800s, and somebody told some gossip about this rabbi, and then the, uh, the rabbi found out about it, his reputation was ruined and, and as a leader in the community, and he asked the congregant or whoever it was, uh, to go see him when when the congregant decided he was he wanted to apologize to the rabbi. So the rabbi said, uh, "You can apologize to me and make amends very easily." And, and the congregant, "Oh, thank you so much. I feel so bad. How do I do it, rabbi?" The rabbi said, "Get a pillow, a feather pillow, and cut it open." And then uh, and uh, and the guy said, "Okay, that's kind of weird." Uh, but he cut it open, and then he said, uh, "Shake it out." And he shook it out, and the feathers started flying around. And he said, "Now go gather up all the feathers." And, and, and that's how you'll make amends to me. Basically, that it's impossible. So a question that this listener has is, um, you know, let's say you make a mistake and, and, and you fail. You, you failed as a leader in some sense. It may not be you, you went into the eye of a hurricane like the uh, El Faro did. Um, uh, but, but nevertheless, you failed. And, and at some level, as a leader, as, as a follower, somebody in the community, in the organization, um, how do you go about rectifying that the language you know martin luther king said you know words that come from the heart enter the heart you know how 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 can we undo or make amends the mea culpa side of things as leaders saving face you know i mean it's uh, is it possible or you know do you just have to just soldier on or you know sailor on uh, again i keep failing at my naval analogies but can you help our, our listener kind of deal with like failure and Letting your letting your uh, letting your team down, and then but wanting to to have a, a, a teachable lesson from that experience. Well, you you can't undo anything. Mm-hmm. That's obvious. It's happened. Mm-hmm. You can try and have justice or make amends, but it's unless you have some power to go back in time that I don't know about. <laughs> I'm working not, on in the lab. I'm not allowed to talk about that. Yeah, yet. you're not going to undo DARPA's it. not letting me. You're not going to undo anything. Look, if, if you get to the end of the day and you don't in your head think, oh, I could have made this better. I could have been or I had this been. I could have asked this better. I could have been more empowering here. I could have trusted a little bit more here. Like If you don't have like 10 of those at the end of the day, I think you're just walking through life clueless. Mm. if you don't think every day now i'm not saying like i made a decision launch the columbia shuttle and and people died i it doesn't need to be that dramatic but you can make it better you can be better every day Mm. you you just move on sometimes you don't need to apologize just move forward be be better i made a public commitment to my team to be a better leader, to not tell them what my thing was, don't give any orders. Mm. If I tell you guys what to do, you, I want you guys to, to call me out on that. I want you to yellow card me. We had referee card. We had these little referee yeah. cards. We went through a lot of them. Mm. 
and so you're going to get feedback but hiding it no mm -hmm. you're not going to mm -hmm. they're going to be dysfunctional look whatever behavior you do they're going to do so do you want if your team makes a mistake do you want them to come tell you about it or mm -hmm. would you rather they just hide it yeah okay you, you whatever behavior you do they're going to do so if you make a mistake, you come clean. You say, "Hey, I, I could have done better. Should have, I, I wasn't in a good frame of mind when I was running this meeting. I, I didn't really do a very good job listening, in my opinion. It was brought up to me, or maybe you just self-reflected on it." Then, it, it, isn't that what you would want your people to do? Yeah. As leaders, we have this we have this arrogant asymmetry in our perspectives. Well, I'm going to be like this, but you have to be like like that. Mm. Right, different standards, shifting zeitgeist for the, the the followers versus the leader. But I don't know a single leader who wasn't a follower, and I don't know a single leader who never failed at something. You know, if you even look at, uh, you know, how many baseball teams uh, win the World Series every single year for all eternity, no one. So, you know, getting, succeeding, and dealing with that. Um, it brings up another uh, question for me to you, uh, if you indulge me, and then we'll get on to these final uh, three questions. Um, how do you deal with the letdown? I mean, you had the keys to a $2 billion vehicle. Uh, what was that like when you stepped down? I mean, I know it was also the beginning of another career for you, but uh, what is that like emotionally? I mean, you got to the promised land. So few people in, in that industry, so to speak, get to there. Um, was it a letdown? How, how do you deal with it? Is it just your character? You're just like, I don't know, I'm just going to get to work the next day, start writing the book. No, I didn't write the book for 10 years because it took 10 years. The reason I wrote the book was not because we turned the worst submarine into the best and we went from the worst to the best morale. It's because 10 years later, we created more submarine commanders than any other submarine. And this is what's lost. I mean, to turn the ship around is just the hook to get you to buy it. But the real story is about creating leaders. But again, listen to the language. When you stepped down, why not when I stepped up or stepped away? But the language, the language builds in these emotional uh, interpretations that look when I look leaving the submarine, it was that was awesome. But I was on the next phase of my life, which mm -hmm. was in this case, I, I was an inspector. I stayed in the Navy for another ten years. Wow, I was an, I was an inspector of other submarines. I we moved to places of bigger yeah. scale so uh just the last thing i'll say on that there's a famous rabbi in judaism uh, the labavitcher rabbi the head of the chabad movement of judaism and he was rumored to say um you know a good leader creates uh, a massive number of followers but a great leader creates a massive number of leaders and i, and I think that that's uh, sort of in harmony with the message of uh, turn the ship around uh yeah. the last Good leaders create more leaders. Yes. Here's a question: Following what? Because it makes a big difference. <laughs> that is a thought experiment. Yeah, another Gedanken experiment. Okay, uh, okay. I was just about to call you Rabbi, but that's uh, another honorific, Captain uh, Captain Marquet. Let me just uh, finish up with the questions that I ask of all my guests. If you'll indulge me for a couple more minutes. Uh, first one has to do with uh, a concept that we call an ethical will. And you may know that Alfred Nobel had a will that endowed the famous Nobel Prizes. 
And in that will, he said the prizes should go for the greatest discovery or invention in physics, chemistry, et cetera. But he also said that the award should be for something that benefited mankind. In other words, the will was not just a material will giving away his Swedish kroner, but it was also an ethical will. It was giving wisdom or advice or conveying a message uh, to humanity that he most uh, wanted them to adhere to. And, and in, in fact, that lesson has probably been heeded more than the impact of his financial uh, munificence. So I want to ask you, uh, Captain, uh, if you're going to leave an ethical will, not your material will, what would you leave as a wisdom, as a... As a as a, as a brief inheritance to future generations uh, that you've accumulated from your wisdom or advice uh, so far on this planet? I, wanna, I want work to not suck for so many people. <laughs> I want people to be able to go to work. I want people to be able to be fully human, say what they think, not worry about being judged, not feel psychologically safe, not worry about being second-guessed, not worry about being judged based on how old you are, the color of your skin, mm. and uh, to go home free of toxins and free of stress so that you don't carry that out on your family. And the problem isn't evil people. There are a few evil people, and we'll get them sorted out. But the problem is the vast majority of people who are just doing the same thing that their grandparents did, which was okay for their time, but it we can do so much better now. We're not. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping that this book, as I said, there's more people that go through the education system that become then become leaders, but maybe the top-down approach isn't working. Maybe we can change education if we change our leadership models and language is the, is the first step, as you point out. Second question, Captain, revolves around uh, Arthur C. Clarke's famous 2001 A Space Odyssey, his book. Uh, turned into a movie, Stanley Kubrick, where the movie features an opening, uh, really, you know, canonical scene of all time. These monoliths, these giant structures that are, you know, really meant to be discovered by humankind, placed there by an ancient unseen civilization as sort of a time capsule, encapsulating something objective, a material object, or what have you. I want to ask you, if you could plant a monolith on some other planet, or even on Earth, it's going to last for a billion years, it's your billion-year time capsule. What would you put in it, on it? What would it be? Well, I don't know about other planets, but on Earth it would be think for yourself. Good enough. I think that's fantastic. And uh, last question uh, really revolves around the second law, a third law of Arthur C. Clarke, which was the only way to find out what is possible is to venture out a little bit beyond into the impossible. So now we're going backwards in time. We had two about future of, of your contributions and then the uh, future of perhaps the, uh, the planet. Uh, now going back in time, advice to your former self. What seemed impossible to you once and now is eminently possible because you ventured a little bit into the impossible? Me? Uh, well, I will tell you that uh, I grew up during the Cold War and that just seemed like that was going to define life forever. And then it ended one day and it was amazing. And it seemed like we'd stepped away from, we didn't have to do hide under our desk and do nuclear. And that was because Reagan and Gorbachev were maybe able to step outside of their traditional roles. Gorbachev in particular, I think, deserves a huge amount of credit. Uh, for 
for that. I'm not, that's not such a personal story, but no. I did definitely dedicated my, I mean, I went into the military because of the, so, uh, the Soviet threat, I believed in the constitution and our role in defending it. And I spent hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks thinking about how to defeat them if we ever had to go to war. And then all of a sudden, it was over. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's actually a hopeful note to end on uh, because, you know, thinking about the generation of kids growing up with uh, this anxiety, fear of, you know, COVID, et cetera. There's, uh, there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. And I think it's fitting that you discuss your uh, patriotic commitment. I want to thank you for your service. We're hopefully going to release this episode on July 4th, uh, befitting the uh, great co contributions that you've made to the country, not just in terms of your uh, service and commitment to the armed forces, but also to training and inspiring the next generation of leaders and, uh, and benefiting, as you say, this follow-on effect that we don't know, the butterfly effect, you help a leader at work. He or she has a better family life. Uh, you're going to multiply the mitzvot, as we say. Uh, Captain, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time. I know we went a little bit over, but I really appreciate it. Thanks, and thanks for having me on your podcast. Thanks for all the listeners out there. Thanks for what you guys do to make the world a better place. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, rate, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Watch us on YouTube. Listen on iTunes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valko.